Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of coercion, drug use, and suicide that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Carlos Castaneda stood at the top of a massive cliff. His teachers, a pair of sorcerers named Don Juan and Don Hanaro, stood at his sides, whispering secrets in his ears. As he listened, Castaneda stared at the chasm before him. It held terrible danger. The drop wasn't even the worst of it. Castaneda knew that the gorge housed a powerful spirit, a Nawal that could destroy him with a thought. But 48-year-old Castaneda had spent five years preparing for this moment. He was supposed to face the deadly drop and the Nawal and prove his worth as a sorcerer. The moment came for Castaneda to jump, but he held back. The fall frightened him too much as did the vicious things that waited at the bottom. He wasn't ready for the test. Without warning, Don Juan stopped whispering his instructions. Don Hennaro seized Castaneda and gave him a hard push. As he stumbled forward, Castaneda felt his fear melt away. After all, this was his destiny. He let gravity take him as he toppled over the edge. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we take a look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're taking a deep dive into Tensegrity, a yoga-style program that combines physical motion with New Age philosophy. It was designed by author and self-proclaimed sorcerer Carlos Castaneda. This week, we'll tell the story of Castaneda's first forays into occult philosophy and how his career as a writer set the stage for him to later found Tensegrity. Next week, we'll explore the way he used manipulation, sexual coercion, and isolation to keep his adherents in line. We'll also explore the lives of his most devoted disciples, a group of women Castaneda referred to as his witches. Before we get too far into our story, we should clarify that Castaneda wrote extensively about his life in his books, which were largely fabrications. We'll be sharing his version of the narrative while trying to maintain a certain amount of skepticism. 
According to Castaneda, he was born in Sao Paulo, Brazil, on December 25, 1931. His parents were wealthy and well-educated, and he received the best education money could buy. But official records show that instead he was born in Cajamarca, Peru, on December 25, 1925. His father was a manual laborer, and his mother was only 16 when she gave birth. Vanessa is going to take over the psychology from here. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Lying about one's background is a common tactic used by manipulators to seem more exciting or exotic than they really are. Joe Navarro of the FBI's National Security Division's Behavioral Analysis Program cites lying or concealing one's background as one of the common traits shared among dangerous cult leaders. We can already see how Castaneda fits this bill by the fact that he lied about basic details, such as how old he was and who his parents were. We don't know much about Castaneda's childhood, but we do know that from early on, Castaneda struggled with two competing and contradictory feelings. He suffered from low self-esteem, and he overcompensated by demanding love, respect, and praise from everyone around him. Psychoanalyst Alfred Adler noted that insecure people often spend their lives striving for superiority, and sometimes those people become so good at acting confident, they manage to even convince themselves that their posturing is real. So, Castaneda fluctuated between crippling self-doubt and periods of grandiosity. During his self-assured periods, he loved to be the center of attention, although ironically, from a young age, he disliked having his picture taken. This means we have very few images of him today. Veronica Sacco of Penn State observed that this is common in people with a heightened sense of self-worth. In order to maintain their inflated self-image, these individuals must avoid scrutiny at all costs. Any record of Castaneda's thoughts or behavior, even something as seemingly innocent as a photograph, was a threat to his own self-aggrandizement. Carlos Castaneda convinced himself that his greatness lay in his artistic ability, and he grew passionate about visual art and sculpture. He was especially interested in native South American art styles and worked with traditional media like terracotta and soapstone. After studying at the School of Fine Arts in Lima, he resolved to dedicate his life to sculpting. In 1951, when Castaneda was 26 years old, he immigrated to the United States to further his studies and shape his career. But he discovered that opportunities for young sculptors were limited. Instead of renown, Castaneda found himself working minimum wage jobs, like taxi driving and retail work. Dr. Susan Krauss Whitborn of the University of Massachusetts Amherst noted that people with an inflated sense of self-worth are especially averse to acknowledging their own failure. If such a person tries to do something but doesn't achieve their goal, they'll often blame external factors rather than learning or growing from the experience. In Castaneda's case, he couldn't accept that his artistic skills were lacking. When put in a position where he had to admit his faults or blame the world, 
he chose the latter. Castaneda rejected the life of a sculptor. He began drifting through jobs and friendships as he sought out his destiny. He finally got a jolt of confidence when he found someone who validated his ego in 1955. Castaneda was accompanying a friend who was delivering a couple of dresses to one of her mother's clients. Castaneda, 30 years old at the time, met the package's recipient, 34-year-old Margaret Runyon. Although she didn't initially make much of an impression on him, Castaneda stunned Margaret. Margaret sensed some indefinable mystical quality to Castaneda. She wrote down her phone number and slid the paper into a book about the metaphysics of dreams, which she gave to him. Soon the couple began dating. Like many aspects of Castaneda's life, it becomes difficult to say for sure exactly what happened from there. Margaret claimed that they were wed in Mexico in January 1960, but for most of Castaneda's life, he denied that he was ever married. Again, Castaneda deeply wanted to control his own narrative, and shaping the truth was one way that he asserted dominance. Married or not, Margaret and Castaneda explored the world of New Age philosophy together. They had invigorating debates about great religious thinkers and figures. The couple discussed the fact that Jesus and the Buddha never wrote down their own teachings and that their disciples could have corrupted their messages. But Castaneda's philosophical musings were accompanied with doses of manipulation and lies. Margaret often suspected that Castaneda was cheating on her, and he'd play to her suspicions, claiming that different attractive young women had thrown themselves at him. On one occasion, Castaneda told Margaret that a woman named Sue Childress was romantically obsessed with him. Fearful that she'd lose her husband, Margaret scoured phone books in search of the threatening woman. When Castaneda saw how troubled Margaret was, he told his wife that Childress didn't exist at all, or at least she hadn't existed until Margaret had psychically manifested the competitor through her jealousy-driven magical energies. He concluded the revelation by explaining to Margaret that she was to blame for any infidelity he might engage in with another woman. Author Preston Nee defines this kind of manipulation as gaslighting, a form of psychological control in which an abuser lies to make the abused doubt their own mental faculties. People who engage in gaslighting do so to assert dominance of people they see as lesser because they see control rather than connection. Castaneda saw Margaret as the perfect partner. She always seemed impressed by his philosophical musings and believed everything he told her. He asserted his greatness to her, and she reflected devotion back to him. With Margaret's support, he began exploring other avenues to flatter himself. He found that he was a good student and flourished at local colleges. In 1959, the 33-year-old enrolled at UCLA to study archaeology and anthropology. In his first semester, Castaneda was instructed to conduct an interview with a Native American and write a report on it for his archaeology class. To complete the assignment, he connected with an anonymous Native individual and interviewed him about Jimson weed smoking. The paper earned an A. The project only whetted Castaneda's appetite to learn more about Native American hallucinogenic practices. 
In the late 1950s, hippie culture was already flourishing in San Francisco and other parts of California. Young people rejected the conservatism of the 50s by wearing ragged clothing, refusing to work traditional jobs, and freely exploring their sexuality. Hippies also experimented with psychedelic drugs, particularly cannabis and LSD. Liberal intellectuals published books about drug use, such as Aldous Huxley's Pro-Mescaline Doors of Perception, which Margaret and Castaneda read with relish. Author and psychologist Craig Malkin observed that individuals with a high overestimation of their own value are more inclined to dabble with drugs. These substances provide pleasure that the individual may not find in relationships with people they consider their lessers. Even a manipulator like Castaneda could find pleasure in hallucinogenic use. He read books by Aldous Huxley, who claimed that drugs could unlock unknown human potential. After a lifetime grappling with low self-esteem and self-aggrandizement, Castaneda was intrigued by the idea that mushrooms, acid, and peyote could transform him into something greater than human. And when it came time for Castaneda to begin work on his thesis project, he ventured into the desert to chase after Yaqui peyote traditions. The Yaqui were originally native to the Sonora region of Mexico. But after the violence of the Mexican Civil War, an offshoot of the tribe immigrated to the relative safety of the American Southwest. As a South American immigrant, Castaneda saw a personal connection in the way their culture blended their current American home with their roots that stretched south of the border. In 1960, 34-year-old Castaneda boarded a bus to Arizona with no clear idea of what he'd do upon his arrival. The discoveries he'd make on this journey would catapult him to fame and provide him with the means to manipulate and torture his first disciples. Next, Castaneda learns of the true nature of the world and receives the acclaim he believes that he deserves. Now, back to the story. In 1960, 34-year-old anthropology student Carlos Castaneda wandered into the Arizona desert with a nebulous goal to learn Yaqui peyote traditions and achieve enlightenment. When Castaneda stepped off a bus in Nogales, Arizona, he didn't have a specific destination in mind. All he knew was that he wanted to connect with something larger than himself, something spiritual. Before he even left the bus stop, Castaneda met an old Yaqui man who introduced himself as Don Juan. While the old man waited for his bus, he explained that he was originally from Sonora, Mexico, but he'd lived in Arizona long enough to become an expert on the local plant life. Within minutes of meeting, Castaneda asked him to teach him Yaqui peyote practices. Don Juan refused. He boarded his bus and rode away to destinations unknown. But Castaneda was relentless. He learned Don Juan's address and paid the old man a visit at his home. When he arrived, Don Juan remained resolute that he would not teach Castaneda about peyote. 
Instead, he served him drinks and told him stories about his culture and his people's mythology. Because he'd traveled so far, Castaneda spent the night at Don Juan's house. The next morning, when it was time to leave, Don Juan invited Castaneda to return whenever he was available. Castaneda took the offer to heart. For months, the elder taught Castaneda his people's stories and traditions. They became close friends, and Don Juan soon shifted from telling stories to explaining his mystical philosophy. It was difficult for Castaneda to understand the esoteric principles Don Juan taught, but he strove to understand them. Castaneda was so caught up in his new spiritual journey, he began to neglect his wife, Margaret. She didn't know why he was disappearing into the desert, and he would never tell her in advance when he was going to leave. Frequently, she'd simply wake in the morning to see her husband was gone. At some point in 1960, 38-year-old Margaret attempted to leave Castaneda. According to her, she filed for divorce in Mexico, although there was no record of this. Soon after the couple split up, Margaret discovered that she was pregnant. According to Margaret, the child was conceived after the separation and Castaneda was not the biological father. But Castaneda announced to her that the pregnancy was a sign that they should remain together. He also claimed that their divorce was invalid because he'd arranged an elaborate hoax to trick her into only believing she'd filed. Initially, Margaret didn't want to even consider Castaneda's arguments. She was content to have him out of her life forever. But he began visiting her apartment regularly, explaining that they were fated to be together. By the time the baby was born, Castaneda was once more an active part of Margaret's life. Margaret also noticed the love and care that Castaneda showed for her son. The baby delighted in Castaneda's presence, as though they shared a spiritual bond. When Castaneda explained that he was the boy's real biological father through the power of magic, she believed him. Persuaded, Margaret reunited with her ex. And so Castaneda's manipulations of Margaret continued. Dr. Margulies Fielstad, who specializes in family therapy with narcissistic and borderline individuals, noted that successful manipulators succeed not only because they're skilled at playing to others' sympathies, but because they're experts at identifying vulnerable people. When Margaret's son was born in 1961, Carlos Castaneda insisted on being listed on the birth certificate as the father, he relished the idea of having a child of his own and began to tell his friends that the baby really was his biological son. Of course, this claim also gave Castaneda leverage over Margaret. Anytime she began to have doubts about the relationship, Castaneda would point to the child. Did she really want her son to grow up without a father? Unable to argue with that logic, Margaret remained loyal. But the birth of his wife's son wasn't enough to deter Castaneda from his search for spiritual truths. And he finally had a breakthrough on August 7, 1961, a little over a year after he first met Don Juan. By that point, Don Juan decided that Castaneda had demonstrated his devotion to his teachings. 
So Don Juan drove Castaneda to a quiet house in the middle of the desert and supplied him with a jar containing clumps of round, brown plant matter. When Castaneda didn't recognize the material, Don Juan explained that it was peyote. Castaneda didn't even know where to start, so Don Juan instructed him to chew the pieces. The student did as he was told. And while he waited to feel the drug's effects, Don Juan walked Castaneda outside so they could watch the stars and drink tequila. Of course, all we know about Castaneda's drug-induced visions come from his own first-hand testimony, and his veracity as a witness is dubious at best. Castaneda claimed that he saw the world around him shift and change. He felt as though he could see the entire landscape without needing to move his head or his eyes. When he reached for a drink of water, Castaneda noted that the liquid seemed shiny and thick. Astonished by the visions, Castaneda wandered away from the hut and into the desert. There, a dog approached him. The canine had black fur, but was also translucent. A great gleaming mane, like that of a lion's, encircled its neck. Somehow, Castaneda understood that he was supposed to follow the dog, so he let it lead him into a location that Castaneda described as a sort of yellow warmth that came from some indefinite place. There, overcome with a sense of euphoria, Castaneda played with the pup. Once he sobered, Castaneda spoke with Don Juan about what he'd witnessed. Don Juan seemed especially stricken with the appearance of the black dog and told Castaneda that the being was named Mescalito. He was a powerful figure in Yaqui mythology. Few people ever glimpsed Mescalito, let alone played with him. In fact, the dog's appearance could only mean one thing. Castaneda was the chosen one and a great destiny lay before him. Don Juan soon revealed that he was a shaman or a magic practitioner for the Yaqui tribe. He took Castaneda as a pupil, lecturing and debating him on the true nature of reality. To help Castaneda let go of his reliance on reason and science, Don Juan continued to supply Castaneda with peyote, he also incorporated hallucinogenic jimson weed and mushrooms into his lessons. These practices probably served to sever Castaneda's already tenuous connection to reality. Each time Castaneda took a hallucinogen, he learned something new about the true nature of reality. He met wild animals and learned the wisdom of coyotes, lizards, and spirits. He glimpsed other worlds, where the nature of reality itself could be bent or altered. Even humanity as a concept was a lie, Castaneda learned. A truly enlightened being became something greater than human. And by truly accepting those teachings, Castaneda proved himself to be an elevated, superhuman creature. Psychologist Art Markman noted that it's common for people to sometimes overestimate their own skills and abilities, but a small number of people will continually overestimate their influence on the world and their place in society, especially when compared to other people. 
Their unearned arrogance drives their behavior and colors every relationship they have. In Castaneda's case, his experience in the desert provided him with everything he thought he wanted. Don Juan assured him that he was special, was powerful, better than everyone else. All of Castaneda's earlier fantasies about his greatness were legitimized. But what Castaneda wanted wasn't the same thing as what he needed, and his growing ego led him to lose perspective. He became disconnected from reality. For the next five years, he continued to study in the desert with Don Juan. Don Juan taught him many magic spells, initiating Castaneda into the sacred order of brujos, or Native American Mexican sorcerers. While Don Juan guided Castaneda through his traditions, the true instructor was Mescalito. The mystical dog regularly appeared to Castaneda during his peyote trips, pushing the student to connect with his shamanistic potential. Another teacher, Don Juan's friend, Don Genaro, joined the instruction. Castaneda eventually came to learn that Don Genaro was also inhuman. He was a powerful spirit. Together, Don Juan and Don Genaro would regularly teleport Castaneda to a high cliff in the desert and magically snap Castaneda up and down the cliff face like a yo-yo. One day in 1965, five years after his training began, Don Juan announced that Castaneda was ready for a test. He couldn't advance any further in his training as a sorcerer without proving his faith. Don Juan teleported Castaneda to the top of a very high cliff, much like the one he'd fallen from with Don Genaro many times. Then the sorcerer ordered Castaneda to jump. Castaneda knew that this test was different from his earlier leaps. Don Hinaro wasn't there to yank him back, and Don Juan wouldn't protect him. It was up to Castaneda to save himself from the fall. An ordinary mortal may have felt fear at the trial, but Castaneda was already beyond such human concerns. With a deep breath, he sprinted forward, throwing himself over the ledge. Carlos Castaneda spread his arms and flew over the Golden Desert. By passing the test, he was finally a fully trained sorcerer in Don Juan's Yaqui tradition. In 1967, the newly enlightened shamanic Carlos Castaneda typed up a thesis summarizing his experiences and turned it into his UCLA archaeology professor, Clement Meehan. Mian read the piece, but said that while it was beautifully written, it had no place in academia. He suggested that Castaneda publish it as a novel instead. The dismissal cut deeply. Castaneda longed to be taken seriously by the academic establishment. And with a single conversation, the professor dashed his dreams. Cal State Los Angeles's Ramani Dervasala noted that people who seek external validation from others crave recognition and acceptance for every accomplishment. They cannot accept rejection without great emotional distress. However, Castaneda found solace in his professor's assurance that the writing was strong and engaging, 
So, with me in support, Castaneda instead submitted the first third of his lengthy manuscript to the University of California Press. Castaneda's account included many details of his revelation, the true nature of the subjective world, Don Juan's magic powers, and his ability to shapeshift into a crow. When he submitted the manuscript, he described it as nonfiction. Surprisingly, the University of California Press accepted it. Perhaps they figured that Castaneda was writing metaphorically. Whatever their reasoning, publishers at the University of California Press thought that Castaneda's esoteric desert pilgrimage would resonate with the hippie community. The University of California Press was right. Castaneda's first book, The Teachings of Don Juan, which covered about the first third of his journey to spiritual awakening, sold several thousand copies. The book's success only fed Castaneda's ego. He seemed to believe his own stories and saw his impressive sales as validation. His self-deception only grew worse when international publisher Simon & Schuster bought the rights. From there, his book shot to the top of the bestseller charts in the U.S. The teachings of Don Juan was such a runaway success, Simon & Schuster encouraged Castaneda to produce more follow-up books with the remainder of his thesis text. He released A Separate Reality, Further Conversations with Don Juan in 1971 and Journey to East Lawn in 1972. They were once again released as non-fiction. In a matter of years, Castaneda was a massive success. Free-thinking young people gravitated toward his philosophy, eager for an alternative paradigm to traditional mainstream Western values. As for the book's non-fiction status, it was hotly debated in literary circles from the start. Some of Castaneda's most devoted fans genuinely believed that he'd unlocked the secrets of the universe and had magic powers. The much more common consensus was that Castaneda's discussion of magic and shape-shifting were metaphors for his larger points about subjective experience and New Age beliefs. That didn't spare Castaneda's writings from controversy. In his book, he claimed that he visited a particular waterfall with Don Juan. There, Don Juan spoke of the waterfall's cultural importance and performed magic for Castaneda. But that waterfall was nowhere near traditional Yaqui lands and was unlikely to play any role in their culture. In addition, Castaneda recounted several so-called traditional stories of the Yaqui people, which other anthropologists recognized as coming from other unrelated tribes. His descriptions of Yaqui attitudes towards sex and monogamy were contradictory to findings in other anthropologists' studies. In short, many academics suspected that Castaneda's so-called Yaqui guide and the subsequent divine revelation were falsified. But due to Castaneda's popularity, few were willing to publicly criticize him. At the start of 1972, Castaneda began teaching courses at the University of California, Irvine. His class titled Phenomenology of Shamanism was enrolled to capacity, and additional students regularly stood at the back of the room or sat on the floor to listen to his lectures. Castaneda's classes gave him the opportunity to regularly interact with his most devoted fans. 
Around this time, he began to informally collect disciples who were particularly committed to his ideology. No one knew it yet, but those students would be the first followers in Castaneda's cult. Coming up next, Castaneda's lies are exposed, and he responds by tightening his control on his followers. Now back to the story. Carlos Castaneda claimed that he studied under a Yaqui shaman named Don Juan, publishing his revelations in a best-selling book. Although his critics saw several logical inconsistencies in his memoir, 47-year-old Castaneda still taught fully booked classes at UC Irvine. There he gathered his first students and disciples. Castaneda's followers included several attractive young women, and the sorcerer had multiple affairs. For years, Castaneda had found emotional support in his wife, Margaret. He loved the way she respected him, listened to him, and learned from him. He especially enjoyed the thrill that he felt when he lied to and manipulated her. But as the years went on, Margaret grew resistant to his manipulations. Meanwhile, his female students treated him with the same admiration Margaret once had. When he determined that his wife couldn't meet his need for a submissive devotion, he found it elsewhere. For Margaret, Castaneda's affairs were a blessing in disguise. He'd disappear for weeks or months at a time to be with his lovers. While he was gone, she could get a handle on the real world again. She came to understand that she couldn't live any longer as Castaneda's wife. In 1973, they traveled to New York together. They fought viciously, after which Castaneda talked of his plans to take her son on a visit to South America with him. This was the last straw. To ensure her safety and that of the child, Margaret filed for divorce the next day. She didn't tell Castaneda what she'd done. She just waited for him to see the legal paperwork for himself. But to Margaret's surprise, Castaneda didn't immediately respond. The 47-year-old had once more disappeared into the desert to resume his shamanic studies with Don Juan. Although he'd already completed his first initiation into the sorcerer's world, Castaneda understood that he had to constantly be open to learning. There's no record of this session, only Castaneda's later reports. He claimed these studies allowed him to finally shed his last scraps of humanity. He gained powers that he'd earlier only dreamed of. At the conclusion of the new training, Don Juan explained that the most powerful brujos could even escape death, elevating themselves to a different, unbounded form. Of course, he'd earlier claimed that no man escaped mortality, but Castaneda accepted the new teaching without question. Once he imparted his final lesson, Don Juan disappeared in a blinding burst of magical fire. This was strangely convenient for Castaneda. Several academics had begun openly musing that Don Juan didn't exist. With the Brujo's magical disappearance, Castaneda could now explain why Don Juan was nowhere to be found. When Carlos Castaneda returned to California in late 1973, he claimed that he'd achieved a yet higher level of enlightenment, and luckily, he had plenty of new material for his fourth book. 
With his newfound power, Castaneda announced to his fans and friends that his magic required seclusion from the impure human world. He also emphasized that a wizard could never be photographed or recorded. Although Castaneda had always disliked photography, for the first time he taught that avoiding pictures was a spiritual requirement. He bought a home in Westwood, Los Angeles, and banned cameras and other recording equipment. But he didn't hide away alone. He brought with him three of his most devoted students, all young women who were current or former lovers. He seemed to need all the support and devotion he could get. It's hard to say for sure what exactly happened during the years Castaneda and his followers spent in seclusion. Many believe that this period marked the formation of the cult. Castaneda severely restricted his followers' movements. They rarely left their home and never gave statements to the press. Castaneda's firm ban on photography and recording equipment meant that there were no records of their activities. Castaneda ordered each woman to release her old life and old connections. They were required to quit their jobs and break off contact with friends and family outside of Castaneda's control. To symbolize her rebirth, Castaneda gave each woman a new name. Marianne Simcoe was dubbed Taisha Abelar. Kathleen Pullman received the name Carol Tiggs. Finally, Regina Tall became Florinda Donner Grau, widely considered Castaneda's favorite. He also nicknamed her the Hummingbird. He claimed this was due to her tendency to thrum with potential. Castaneda referred to these women as his witches and told them they had great magical power. He claimed that his harsh restrictions were only to ensure that they didn't dilute their spiritual essence. Social psychologist and escaped former cult member Alexandra Stein explained that often the ability to exert control over other people's lives is the primary goal for cult leaders and others who run fringe organizations. She wrote, Not all leaders want to get rich, gain sexual favors, or grab political power, but all want utter control over others. Castaneda required his witches to dye their hair blonde and cut it in the exact same short style. Like Castaneda, they were forbidden from being photographed or recorded. While Castaneda operated in the shadows, the public continued to flock to his writings. His fourth book, 1974's Tales of Power, recounted his experiences in his most recent and final desert sojourn. But psychologist Richard DeMille wasn't so willing to take Castaneda's claims at face value. He was a social anthropologist who earned a PhD in psychology from USC, a rival school to Castaneda's own UCLA. During his career, DeMille grew increasingly critical of the growing trend in the 1960s anthropology world to blend anthropology with transcendental or magical thinking. He remained a staunch advocate for the scientific method and proper documentation that more and more anthropologists eschewed, and no offender was worse than Carlos Castaneda. After years of digging and fact-checking, DeMille learned that the magical passages weren't the only factually inaccurate portions in Castaneda's books. 
First, DeMille confirmed that Castaneda had lied about his birth date and home country. DeMille also found that some of Don Juan's pithy teachings seemed a bit familiar. In fact, many passages in Castaneda's memoirs were flagrantly plagiarized from C.S. Lewis and other anthropologists. DeMille began to list Castaneda's stolen quotes and their original sources. That document soon grew to be 47 pages long. In 1976, Richard DeMille published a critique detailing the numerous lies and factual errors in The Teachings of Don Juan and Castaneda's other books. DeMille alleged that Don Juan didn't even exist, and Castaneda had never gone into the desert at all, saying Carlos's adventures originated not in the Sonoran Desert, but in the library at UCLA. Initially, the literary world was uncertain how to respond to these claims. They'd already accepted that the book's nonfiction status was dubious at best. A few other investigators, however, followed up on DeMille's claims and found even more inconsistencies in Castaneda's accounts, most damning of all when independent researchers examined the documented religious practices of the Yaqui people. They found that they had no tradition of peyote smoking whatsoever. Castaneda's harshest critics soon found supporters in the Yaqui and Huichol communities. Castaneda's fans had been swarming over Yaqui lands, seeking spiritual truths and disrupting private native communities. When some of those fans had learned that the Yaqui people had no peyote culture, they turned their attention to the nearby peyote-using Huichol. Hippies stripped the fields of mushrooms and other plants that the native people used for medicine or traditional ceremonies. At least one Huichol man was killed by a white spiritual seeker. Anthropology organizations and major news outlets published their own exposés on Castaneda and his lies. The press indicted not only Castaneda, but all of the intellectual elites who'd allowed themselves to buy into his claims without properly fact-checking them. As Yale anthropologist William K. Kelly explained, I doubt you'll find an anthropologist of my generation who regards Castaneda as anything but a clever con man. Perhaps to many, his scam is an amusing footnote to the gullibility of naive scholars, although to me, it remains a disturbing and unforgivable breach of ethics. As his followers turned on him, Carlos Castaneda never issued any kind of public denial. Privately, however, he complained to his followers that the press was lying about him. Although she'd left him, his ex-wife Margaret remained in contact with Castaneda. He whined to her that his critics simply misunderstood the spiritual principles he'd tried to establish. He'd tried to teach the world that reality was subjective, and the world turned around and held him to its so-called objective standards. The whole narrative was unfair to him. By this point, Margaret had wriggled out from under Castaneda's thumb enough to see through his lies. She knew that Don Juan and his magical teachings weren't real. But during her conversations with Castaneda, she was astonished to learn that he spoke as though these teachings were true. He'd become such a good liar, Castaneda had even convinced himself. 
his self-imposed seclusion only became more severe, as did his control over the dozen or so fans who continued to study under him. And although Castaneda's book sales took a sharp dip, he still managed to sell a few thousand copies every year. His career was far from over, but he'd still been humbled and Castaneda was desperate to reclaim his reputation and his acclaim. In the early 1990s, after more than a decade out of the public eye, Castaneda issued a new revelation dictating what he and the witches should do with their powers. They were to help ordinary humans to rise above their limitations. With the witches, Castaneda developed a spiritual movement program called Tensegrity. Tensegrity referred to a series of holy motions and stretches that were designed to strengthen and channel psychic energy. It also, incidentally, could only be taught during in-person workshop sessions. Castaneda sold tickets at over $1,000 apiece. Castaneda was careful to emphasize that tensegrity was completely distinct from Tai Chi and yoga, although they bore many similarities. When asked to describe what makes tensegrity unique, Castaneda said, to compare tensegrity with yoga or Tai Chi is not possible. In 1993, 67-year-old Carlos Castaneda began secretly giving Tensegrity workshops. He didn't advertise them publicly, but allowed word of mouth to spread the news through the New Age community. In spite of his public shaming, Castaneda's reputation in hippie circles was still stellar, and Tensegrity seemed like something new and exciting. His events soon began to sell out, this was exactly the response Castaneda longed for. In order to manage the money and offset personal liability, in 1995, he founded a company called Cleargreen, which he owned and ran with his witches. At workshops, Castaneda made careful note of his attendees. Who was a repeat customer? Who responded most strongly to his criticism and feedback? And who seemed most spiritually open? Those that Castaneda determined were the most susceptible to his teachings were invited to study on his compound, along with him and the witches. And a few of his most devoted followers were even granted the opportunity to live with him. Under his increasingly controlling leadership, Castaneda's followers were promised that they could learn to be shamans and brujos. All they had to do in return was Grant Castaneda complete control over every aspect of their lives. For some of them, this also meant he would choose how they died. Next week, we'll discuss the rise and fall of Tensegrity and the tragic end that befell Castaneda and his witches. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back with part two on Tensegrity next Tuesday. For more information on Tensegrity and Carlos Castaneda, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Salon piece, The Dark Legacy of Carlos Castaneda, and Castaneda's The Teachings of Don Juan, extremely helpful to our research. 
You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Anthony Balsic with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Cults was written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.